This show is distributed by SoundCloud. Welcome. Welcome to episode 114 of Texting, hosted by myself, Justin Vincent, and Jason Roberts. So today we have on my brother, my older brother, Jay, who's a, a nuclear engineer, or was in a previous life, and I thought we'd bring him on to uh, give us a little insight into the situation in Japan, because there's been a lot of, I don't know, a lot of media coverage, a lot of speculation, some histrionics, um, and it's kind of hard to figure out exactly where the truth lies and what's uh, what's really going on. So, um, Jay, it's good to have you on. Oh, it's good good to be here. Nice to meet Justin. Oh, thank you very much. <laughs> we also said that we we should make it clear what the what the date is that we, that this show has been recorded, so that you can have a context with regard to the ongoing news. So, this show is recorded on Friday, March eighteenth, at three o five p.m. PST. So, um, Jay, before we get into the situation in Japan, um, why don't you give us a little background on, or give us, tell us what your background is in, uh, in nuclear science, nuclear engineering, because I only have a vague understanding of what happened. I mean, I know you went and got, you got an undergrad degree in physics and you went on and did some stuff in the Navy. So why don't you just tell us what else? Okay. Uh, as, uh, you know, I, as, as you mentioned, I got an undergraduate degree in physics. Um, then, uh, I went into the, uh, Navy's uh, as a submarine officer uh, and went through their nuclear power training um, and then oversaw operations of nuclear reactors on operating submarines out at sea. It's pretty extensive training, as you might imagine. And um, during that time, I also ran um, the unit on the submarine that was responsible for maintaining the reactor. Following that, when I got out of the Navy, uh, that, that was in the late late 80s. Uh, I worked in about f- in commercial nuclear power for about five years uh, doing computational simulations of reactors of heat removal of safety issues and dealing with the Nuclear Regulatory Commission. During that time, I also got an advanced degree in mechanical engineering with an uh, emphasis on computational fluid dynamics. I got out of the field in the mid-90s and just went on to more commercial software development. So, so in the UK, we have a saying for that, you know your onions. <laughs> well, well, I knew them at some point. <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the, the things change slowly in the nuclear world. Right. Uh, yeah, this is a 40-year-old plant that they've got over there. So how similar is this plant to um, the kind of nuclear reactor you dealt with on the subs that you were on and also on the... Uh, at the commercial plants that you worked? Well, the, um, generally speaking, in, in the West, when I say the, we, we use hit term for the, non, for the non-previous Soviet communist stuff, there's two types of commercial reactors, uh, uh, pressurized water reactors and boiling water reactors. And the, these are kind of s- small distinctions, uh, you know, in, in the larger scope of things. But the pressurized water reactors, uh, the water never changes to steam in the reactor. They It actually gets piped to what's called a secondary loop, and they have heat exchangers and generate steam there, which drive a turbine in a boiling water reactor. The... Um, the water actually boils in the in the reactor core and is driven through the turbine. The turbine actually is 
you know, considered a radioactive component at that point. Uh, the, my understanding out there is uh, the, you know, the, these, the ones of concern are these Mark I, uh, they're boiling water reactors. The naval reactors are typically pressurized water reactors. Uh, in terms of reactor accidents and whatnot, though, they're pretty much the same sort of concerns. So the now, I wanted you then to give us a little breakdown of what actually happened um, in, with Japan's reactors. I mean, you know, there was an earthquake and then a tsunami, and the tsunami did some damage to uh, the plants after the earthquake might have done some stuff. I mean, I'm not exactly sure what happened in sequence. Okay. Could you maybe give us an overview? Okay. You know, the the um, in in a, in a reactor, the most important thing you you need to usually do is remove the heat. Okay. I mean, you know, they're basically they're heat generating objects, so you can heat up water and 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 turn it into steam and drive a turbine. Um, in when you're operating a, a plant, right after you shut it down, the reactor core generates quite a bit of heat uh, for a period of time after shutdown. This uh, is due to you'll hear it called decay heat, uh, re- residual fission products, because when you split your atoms in in the core. The uh, it also creates other radioactive products, which also decay, which is you know energy. The uh, <clears throat> when you first shut down, and it depends on the reactor, but typically when you first shut down after a long period of operations, you'll still be generating about five percent of that reactor's power. So you have a, a considerable amount of heat load to to re- to remove from this thing. Uh, so you then. You know, I'm very concerned about your post shutdown, post shutdown removal of heat. Uh, the and they have a lot of systems, and a lot of reactor design is about this actual post shutdown removal of heat. The the reactors shut down as they were supposed to when they had their earthquake. Excuse me, <clears throat> I'm just getting over a cold. Um, they they shut down as designed when they you know due to their they had an automatic shutdown, everything seemed to be okay. Uh, their their diesel their diesel they they lost their power due to the earthquake. They're external. They're connected to the grid. This is what's called a station blackout event. So they have to have their own power sources to to run all their pumps, run all their control systems, and, and various things like that. So their their emergency diesels start up, and they probably started up automatically. This is just part of the design of these things. And so everything, and, and so that you know, the, the reactor shut down. The emergency generators are running. They're pumping the stuff out. They're pumping their heat to their 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 uh, heat exchangers. Everything's going along fine. And then uh, a, a tsunami came along, and the my understanding was they were designed they designed the plants with the expectation of about a twenty foot tsunami, but this one was larger than that, so it overtopped whatever barriers they had. Uh, the diesel generators were actually uh, below grade. Uh, this was considered a good thing for some reasons, like typhoons or airstrikes or you know uh, various types of events. But in this case, it flooded the diesel generators, which knocked them out completely. Even still, at that point, they 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 had about eight or ten hours on batteries for uh, powering their site, but they couldn't restore power in that time. And that's when you start running into a a chain of events of of not being able to remove the heat from your reactors. Uh, at that point, what what happens is um, you start some of the water starts boiling. You have to start letting off the pressure. 
uh, the you know the then then there's there you know as that ha- you know eventually you're going to get to a point that your your core is melt. Um, what does that mean? Your core melts. What what is well, the core exactly? The core is the fuel rods. Okay, the, that's okay. actually the uranium and in some cases plutonium. The fuel so, rod. Uh, so they're so it's like it's, it's a shape of a rod and it's made out of pure uranium or pure plutonium. Is that right? It, it depends on the reactor. The the, uh, the naval reactors ours are actually uh, some zircon alloy. Um, you know, it, it just it depends. It, it'll be uranium oxide. It might have some plutonium mixed in it. The if you they'll have other things mixed in it to, depending upon what kind of power cycles you want to go to. But there will be long, There'll be pieces of metal or there might be pellets that go in a channel. All, you know, but it'll, how, it'll, how, big, how big are the rods? Well, you know, I, I like I, the the one the one plant I was working on in the commercial side. It was actually pellets that would be inserted into um, into the uh, into channels. Other place like our naval reactors, they were actually big, large pieces of metal. Um, what you want to be able to do with these things is you want to have, be able to have a lot of water flow around them. You don't want some big monolithic mass because you have this uh, you know, nuclear reaction going on and it's generating heat and you're wanting to remove the heat from it. So in any kind of heat exchanger design, you typically want lots of surface area to volume, right? Right. So, so you typically these things are going to be you – know, you know, it's not going to be one big piece of the, of something. It's going to be finned. It's going to be little pieces with a lot of space so that other heat removal medium can come through it, which is typically going to be water. Right. Okay. Um, go on. But there, there'll be quite a bit in there. I mean, you know, it'll certainly measure in the tons. Tons of stuff. So how big were the um, the reactors that you had on – or the, the reactor you had on the sub versus, say, the reactor that would power a city? Uh, the, um, the, you know, they were a lot smaller for a couple of reasons. I mean, you don't need as much power on a submarine. Sure. Uh, they were also smaller so that they could fit into a submarine. Uh, and the, uh, we actually used in that case, we, we used very highly enriched uranium on submarines, which is not the case in, in commercial power. Some, uh, they, we, we, we use very close to bomb grade uranium like 93 95% enriched uranium uh the the if that makes any sense to you <laughs> the uh, uh you know that allowed a much greater what they call power density which is how much power are you generating per unit of machinery weight is so, it is it more is it more but it's more dangerous to have that uh that kind of uranium but you figure if it's if there's no no safer place than on a, say a nuclear sub uh dangerous um dangerous expensive you know, it's okay. uh, you know, it's it's uh, reprocessing and, and enriching uranium. The as opposed to just the natural isotopes that occur in nature. You know, it's a, that was part of the big trick of the whole Manhattan Project was how do you enrich uranium to make the bomb? You know, that's right. what everybody's getting. You know, over in Iran and everything like that. The uh, if I recall correctly, I think some of the the uh, Canadian reactors, the Can-Do reactors, they could just use on un- completely unenriched uranium just such as it was mined and uh refined but uh typically the western reactors are using somewhat you know mildly enriched uranium it's it's far from bomb grade though 
Well, and, and they're and they're they're enriched using what centrifuges? Isn't that what's the the process? Uh, I, I know the ba- the process back in the old days with these gas centrifuges. I I actually don't know how they do that. You know these days. Can I ask a side question? Okay. Why why is it so hard for someone like Iran to build a nuclear bomb? I mean, to to me, I, what I don't understand is what where, where's the complexity? It, I, from everything I read, and obviously I have a, a totally non understanding of it. Isn't it just like plutonium when you shove that in a bomb and then if the bomb works? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know, um, yeah, yeah, that, that's true. It's like, well, you know, how hard, you know, it's like, well, how hard is it to, uh, you know, have a space program or something like this? I mean, it, it, it's just a big industrial enterprise. Yeah, and you have a lot of process along the way. And you have to control it, and it's capital investment. Uh, I don't think there's really any secret to it. But what's the What's the hard part that stops them? I mean, what's the hard part that that because the press will always say, "Oh, they're four years away from being able to do it," or something like that. Like, well, I what, think it's, what is so, the part that takes four years? Or? I think it's just getting getting these uh, enrichment facilities up and running. It, it it it's it's that's quite an enterprise in itself. That's uh that that our whole facility in Oak Ridge, Tennessee, I believe that's where we were during World War Two. That right. We were that doing- was they, they, that's that was a big secret, right? That the Oak Ridge facility <laughs> this huge right. secret, and it was just gigantic in scale, wasn't it? That right. Was- you know, and maybe they brought it down some, but. Uh, you know, or, or you know, uh, made it more efficient, but it's still you. You, uh, you have to handle a lot of material. You, I, I mean, I think they went, at Oak Ridge they had like thousands of centrifuges to do. Is that. there like um, an, an analogous uh, analogy <laughs> that could be used to describe it? I mean, is it like uh, I don't know, uh, distilling alcohol or something? I mean, it, yes, yes. You know, it's or it, may, it might even be more like you know getting diamonds out of uh, you know or, or out of, out of a mine or something because it's a, it's a very small percentage of the the, the the fission you know the fissionable uranium is is an isotope called uranium two thirty five. The normal occurring isotope is uranium two thirty eight, which is a vast majority of uranium. There will be small, maybe one. You know, it's a very small percentage of naturally occurring uranium is uranium-235. Uh, so then, you know, if you just want to s- distill it out, you got to go through a lot of uranium to get that. I you see. Know. So that's so, the part that takes the time. Yeah, and then there's other strategies where you can actually, you know, they talk about breeder reactors where you, you, you put, uh, you know, uranium-238 in it, and you can turn it into, I think it's plutonium-239, which is also fissionable. But then, you know, you have to have a breeder reactor. <laughs> you know, so, so, you know, it, it, there's not a particularly easy path towards getting a lot of, uh, you know, fissionable uranium. It's just, it's a big enterprise. And of course, it's not, it's not available in that many places, right? I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a rare element to get a it's hold of, right? relatively rare. I, it, it's, I, you know, I would say it's, it's kind of hard to buy on the free market. <laughs> You're not going to go to Target and get pick up some of your right. I, I think, you know, some of what are some of the, I mean, I think we're one of the big suppliers. Okay. Uh, I think there's, I, I think South I think Uganda or something. And some yeah, there's one or two places in Africa that we're doing it, but it's, you know, so you got to, you have to get the ore. You have to have the people to run the, these facilities. You have to build the facilities in the first place. It's just, it's just a large industrial undertaking. And, you know, we, we started off into this ourselves. We, you know, we, we, you have to have a lot of different types of experience. You have to have people that know how to build these machines and run them. There's a lot of different processes along the way. So you, you have to build a whole infrastructure 
to deal with this. We did in a crash course in World War II for the Manhattan Project, and then our various nuclear capabilities came out of that, including our nuclear, you know, we built nuclear laboratories and we started experimenting, hey, we, we got all this nuclear power stuff, let's, let's try to see if we can make some reactors out of it now. And then we actually put these things on submarines. That was the first use of nuclear power, really, uh, in the United States. It was prior to the commercial industry. And then, you know, they said, hey, we got all this. Uh, the first commercial plant at a place called Shippingsport, Pennsylvania, was essentially a naval reactor design. And then the industry has since been populated by naval people. And so, so, so you know, it's this organic development of a large – nuclear power tends to be a very large industrial enterprise – so and and then they they also put them on aircraft carriers, right? They put them on aircraft carriers, yes. Uh, they, right. We yeah we we were putting them on different ships uh, for a while, and then just decided that was not a particularly good idea. <laughs> <laughs> In case they, those ships get bombed, is yeah is yeah you know, and, and you have to have these highly trained people, and it's very expensive. I mean, it's particularly well suited for submarines because of the. Uh, you don't need any air and uh, it's particularly well suited for aircraft carriers for the gross amount of power that they need. There was a period where they were putting them on mid-sized ships, but then that was sort of abandoned several decades ago. Right. And what do they power their ships with now? Coal? Uh, they're, they're actually doing a lot of gas turbine stuff. Okay. Uh, yeah. yeah. I mean, coal, coal, actually coal was superseded by oil. Uh, okay. Early in the 20th century, and then oil was the way to go for a long time. And the way the, now they're going towards these gas turbines, which are really nice because you know it's almost just like starting up your car. You just go in and you turn the thing on, and you, and you go away from the pier. You drive away from the pier. <laughs> right. Right. So, <laughs> yeah, so, so we 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 kind of got you off track though. So okay. back to Japan and and what happened there. So, I mean, I, I was reading in the in some articles today that. You know, that the they were saying, well, this isn't going to be a Chernobyl for X, Y, and Z reasons because Chernobyl didn't have a containment facility, and right. uh, some, and also, but they were also saying that the four reactors combined that are having issues at was it is it Fukushima? Is that how, fu, fu, Fukushima? Fukushima? Fukushima, Daiichi or something? Dai, yeah. yeah, just Fukushima, I think, is probably good enough. <laughs> okay, that, and, uh, that they had in aggregate three times the amount of um, potential, um, I don't know, radioactive material. Is right, right. So, sure. so what's the story there? What's, I mean, what, what's the um, comparison? Well, this is a lot, but, you know, if you said yes, if this were to all get released into the environment, um, that this... Yeah, sure. It's, it, it's grossly more radioactive material than than was at Chernobyl. Um, I, I, you know, I, I'd also like to qualify my re- remarks first by saying I'm I'm really not pro or anti nuclear. I'm kind of a- agnostic at it in, in in retrospect, and um, so you know. Well, this, before, before we get, then why 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 are you why are you you would think that after being, having been a a nuclear engineer, you would be very pro. So what m- makes you agnostic nowadays? Well, no, I mean, I, you know, it's just one thing. It, it It is a, you know, if we could do something else to make electricity that had equally, you know, that that was, you know, frankly, nuclear power is pretty safe. It, uh, you know, I, it, it, nuclear power requires a large investment of people, of capital, of infrastructure, 
generally on a day-to-day basis, you know, it's very, very safe. I mean, I would much rather live next to a typical Western plant than, than a coal plant. Uh, there's no doubt about that. Um, and, but, you know, the, cons- the, the, the remote consequences way out here at the end of the curve are pretty dire, okay? Yeah. Um, and the economics of it are, the eco- this is something you don't hear a lot about. The economics of it are a little bit different than a lot of other power generation strategies, which is you pay for the whole thing up front. You know, the the fuel costs and the operating costs of a nuclear power plant are very much smaller compared to a coal plant. I mean, a coal plant, you know, you basically, a a big full-size one, you know, you you essentially have a continuous coal train running into this thing. And so when when you shut it down, the cost to the operator drops off very substantially for that thing. Whereas a nuclear power plant, it's all capital investment up front. You know, you bought this thing, now you got to run this thing for 40 years to recapture your investment, okay? That puts a lot of pressure to keep the things up and running. That's why you'll find that nuclear power plants uh, get used as baseline loading. They don't use they they don't bring them up and down for peaks like they will for coal or or, or turbine plants. They, they 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 use them for baseline loading. They bring these things up to 100 percent power, and then they, and then when they shut them down for refueling and maintenance, it's just very very hectic to bring it back up. Because when you shut that thing down, you have to make up your generating capacity somewhere else, which means you're going to start up your coal plant. Now you got to start you got to start paying for that coal plant, but you're still pay, paying for the nuclear power plant. This creates a lot of institutional dynamics to keep that thing up and running at all cost. Right, right. So that, that's so, sort of inherent to the because of the capital investment, the way the way right. it's work. Right. It's not terrible, term- but but, it, but it, 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 people need to recognize that. So, so you're agnostic not because you feel that they're particularly dangerous or anything like that, just because of the economic structure uh, of of paying for and or financing a, a nuclear plant isn't. Uh, a, a clear win over other um, strategies, or, or what? Well, you know, um, it would be nice if there was something else. That's <laughs> all I can like. Um, you know, I, I, you know, I realistically, you know, I, yeah, we can put up some some wind towers and so, but we're not going to generate the kind of power that you need to run a modern society. The right. only things they really got right now are nuclear power, coal. Now, I would take nuclear power over coal. Sure. Sure. Yeah, let me put that one. When I say agnostic, I just mean I'm not like this total booster. Right, right. Okay. So yeah. So I I keep getting you off track. You're 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 about to explain you were about to explain to us uh a comparison between Chernobyl and the uh the the reactors in Japan. Okay. Um the you know (laughs) not to slag on the Soviets or anything, but you know, a lot of their stuff was highly deficient. Okay, just in general, because they they sort of had this somewhat corrupt political structure and whatnot. Uh, You know, the big there were a couple of things that happened there at Chernobyl. One of which was just the basic design of the place. First of all, as you you noted, it didn't even have a containment structure. It was just like you know, in a big Walmart building somewhere. Okay, (laughs) yeah, I mean, you know, to keep the rain off of it. The uh, uh, then on top of that, it was called a graphite moderated design, which we this actually uses lumps of graphite in the um, reactor core for 
design reasons, which was a design that in the West we explored using early on. And there was a nuclear disaster in Britain called Windscale in 1957 uh, at a graphite-moderated reactor. And everybody in the West after that, after examining that accident, said, this is a really bad idea. And so we never went down that path. And for some reason, the Soviets, they did all these RBMK reactors, built these things up with these graphite-moderated designs, didn't put containment around, and just started running away. Then on top of that, uh, my understanding was, you know, some of the Soviet cronyism, like their plant manager there, like the last time that uh, his previous assignment was running a shoe factory or something like that. But, you know, he was a good communist. You know, so right. they, they had, and, and the, some of the dynamic characteristics of, of the way these reactors run. So they were a whole, you know, you'll, you'll find out when you look into like these big industrial accidents, very rarely is it just, hey, Captain Hazelwood was drunk and he ran the ship aground. Usually there's a whole bunch of factors. The tumblers line up, you know. Right. And, 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 and so, you know, you kind of had this at Chernobyl. Uh, the, 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 the graphite, you know, there so they were operating at power, which okay. uh, when this incident happened. So, so at that point, all, you know, that's the first really bad thing. Uh, no, okay. We see. Are, they, are, you t- are you talking about Chernobyl? Or are you talking about Chernobyl? Um, Chernobyl. Okay, Chernobyl. Okay, okay. They were operating at power, which means that the fuel was as radioactive as it was ever going to be because you have all these fission products which decay after you shut down. Okay. Okay. So, so the the fuel was as hot as it was ever going to be. I mean, even right now. At Fukushima, they've been shut down for a week. You know, I mean, the probably, you know, the, the, you know, it's, it's one tenth as hot as it was a week ago. Yeah. You know? I mean, this, this starts dropping off rapidly. So this, the fuel is incredibly hot. Then, you know, they, of course, they didn't have a containment. They had this explosion, you know, exploded the reactor right into the atmosphere. And this graphite lights on fire. Okay. Now, you know, it's bad. You, you, have, you have radioactive material, but if it's just sitting here on the ground, I mean, that's, I mean, it's bad, but it's not as bad as it is if it gets up into the atmosphere, but needs a way to get up into the atmosphere. Well, you've, you've got this, this graphite that's burning in the smoke and it's melting little pieces and it's then training it into the atmosphere. Okay. Wow. Okay. So, you know, this, this, this is about as bad. It's hard to imagine a situation. I, I, I'm sure there probably is, but at the point, this point, it's, it's hard to imagine a situation much worse than that. Right. You know, I mean, so just, that's, that's, what spread the, that's what spread the radioactivity so far throughout uh, Ukraine, Ukraine and Eastern Europe, right? Because right. it was blown up into the atmosphere? Right, right. You need a way to get it up in the atmosphere. Now, what, what happens, uh, you know, over here in Fukushima is... You know, they, they periodically are having to, to vent, uh, you know, if you're generating some sort of gas, how does this stuff actually get from there to somewhere else? Okay. Right. The, um, now, that doesn't mean that there's no, you know, there's plenty of ways at Fukushima for ga- gas to be generated, i.e. steam from water boiling off, you know, which is happening apparently in this spent fuel pool, you know, various things like that. Some of the, you know, some of the stuff can get so hot it just vaporizes. And so, you know, but it, it, it isn't sitting there burning in a heap and, you know, totally exposed to the atmosphere like it was in Chernobyl. So it's somewhat mitigated. In, 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 in that regard. And plus, you know, of course, you've got these containment structures, uh, you know, they, which is 
not true for these spent fuel pools, but at least for the reactors, even even if they're somewhat breached or cracked, that you know that still provides some some mitigation. Um, so, you know, it, I mean, there, there's a lot of things uh, mitigating events there at Fukushima that prevent it from being a uh, a Chernobyl at the moment. So there was that article that went round that basically debunked that there was any danger whatsoever. And um, well, I it wasn't debunked. Then- it was cl- he, the guy was a he's a a quote unquote MIT scientist who basically said why I'm not worried about the nuclear reactors or the nuclear situation in Japan. And then it turned out that he had all his predictions were wrong, and right. that he wasn't actually a nuclear scientist at all, but specialized in uh, entrepreneurship, uh, entrepreneurship and uh, risk management. Um, and you, what, what was the situation? Did you read that, Jay? And I, I think oh, I remember wow. seeing that a few days. I've been reading all kinds of stuff, as you might imagine. Um, right. You know, I guess I, just for the record, you know, my family is over in Japan at the moment. Um, so I'm... Where, 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 are, uh, where are they? Uh, they're in Osaka, which is about five or 600 miles to the south of the southwest. So, they're, so I mean, they're okay right now, but, you know, we've been assessing the situation. Uh, yeah, you know, you, you've got to look at like this. Uh, I mean, I, I remember reading that and, and this whole idea to say, is nuclear power safe? I mean, it's kind of like, you know, w- what's the definition of safe? What does it mean for something to be safe anyhow? I mean, there really is no such thing as safety. There's just acceptable levels of risk. I mean, nothing is completely safe. And I mean, driving nothing- to the store is not safe, right? Yeah, right. I mean, and living near the coastline in northern Japan. That's the classic uh, pro-smoking argument. Right, I guess, yeah, you know, but it, I mean, it's it's true. I mean, if, when somebody says safe, it's like they they say, "Is it safe?" You know, you've maneuvered yourself into an argument you can't win if you're the one right. that's trying to prove that something is safe. Um, you know, I mean, it, you know, how safe is it to live along the coast? You know, we're seeing all these poor people in Japan. You know, I mean. Or live in you California, know. right? I mean, you know, live in Yeah, Earth, yeah. Right? You know, I mean, that's, that, that's been a lot worse for them than living near, near a nuclear power plant, at least up t- to today, you know. So, um, you know, it's like, you know, you got to say, what's an acceptable level of risk? I think that's how you really got to phrase it, because everything, you know, I mean. So, re- but regarding that article, was, was that guy completely wrong, or was he semi-wrong, or what do you think? Um, I think, you know... Uh, he was probably he was probably half right and half wrong. <laughs> you know, <laughs> uh, you know the, I'm going to tell you, you know, it's very hard to get clear information. I mean, you know, about a lot of nuclear issues, and even for myself, you know, having spent time in the field, that's why I say I'm a little agnostic about it. One of the one of the issues is is that nuclear power is highly is a highly charged political issue. Okay, it's not like talking about like. You know, how am I going to design the deck out behind my house? It's like talking about abortion or something. Almost everybody that's talking about it has some axe to grind. And, you know, even, even with the best of intentions, it's not like people are nefarious. And that includes the pro people. You know, the pro people, you know, they're, they're, they actually do believe in nuclear power, so they don't worry about it. Other people that are against it, you know, the, the, you know the, and the, then the newspapers, they like to sell newspapers. So, you know, fomenting hysteria is a, you know, a wonderful thing. So, so it's very hard to get clear information, even, even though many of the sources of information are very well-intentioned. The, um, you know, so that, you know, and, and the nuclear power industry has sort of been hoisted, you know, on their own petard by this because 
early on, very you know, the fifties and the sixties, you know, they, they pretty much said, "Oh, this stuff is so safe." You know, this is perfectly safe. There's no, there's no risk. And that was sort of the way this was initially presented back in the sort of Jetson 50 era, right? Yeah. And so, of course, anybody then for the slightest thing can say, you're a bunch of liars because look what happened here, even for minor incidents. You know, so the very adversarial defensive mode comes up and, you know, there's this whole dynamic now of, defense and offense between these various sides on these things. But they but they 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 actually, you know, they, it was kind of oversold early on. And you know, the, some of the way that uh you deal with radiation is some of it has to do with like ethical considerations or whatnot. Like they in, in the nuclear industry or radiology, basically they have this philosophy of no safe dose. Okay, because some of it is is we don't really know what the effects are of very low levels of radiation. There's really no ethical way to to determine that. I mean, you can go back and try to extrapolate studies of Hiroshima survivors or people that were near Hiroshima, but there's a lot of noise in those things and results, and there's a lot of unclear results. So, what 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 um, people basically do is they, they do an extrap. You know, this simplifies it a little bit. They say, okay, well, we know at this high level. Um, there is, you know, this risk. So, you know, at, at one quarter of the level, you know, there's a quarter of the risk. You know, the analogy would be, you know, I know if I take a uh, 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 hundred aspirins, anybody's going to die from that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, then to say, well, if, you know, if you take one aspirin, you have a one in a hundred chance of dying. Right. Sort of, okay. <laughs> You know yeah. what I mean? You know, so right. sort of, sort of, sort of done like that. Um, you know, it's a very conservative approach. You know, for like, you know, for radiation protection and shielding and whatnot like that. It makes the industry very conservative about exposing people to uh, radiation during operations. Like on submarines, we actually got less radiation than people above water just because you know the water provides shielding the the ocean provides a lot of shielding from norm you know gamma ray come gamma rays coming in from out of space and whatnot so you know we were so well shielded from our own reactor that that, that we ended up actually getting less less radiation than we would get ashore yeah we get um, radiation just by being in our house right or just yeah, like, sure, i thought sure. something i saw i was looking at wikipedia and it was like just by sleeping next to a human for eight hours you get like Eight or five microsieverts of radiation. Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, you know, there, there's all kinds of radiation. You know, uh, naturally occurring radioisotopes. I mean, you know, yeah. There's all when they talk about background radiation, they're just sort of an ongoing place. Some places, like out west, I believe, where they've got you know some of the granite, you know, has like uranium higher concentrations of uranium. You know, it's pretty. You know, it's a little bit hotter there. Um, the yeah, you know the. Uh, Interesting thing is the, the coal-fired plants actually, a lot of coal-fired plants actually give off a not inconsiderable amount of radiation in their exhaust plumes just because of uh, isotopes that are in some of the, it depends on what coal they're burning. But some of these plants, if they were nuclear power plants, they would actually be shut down for how much radiation they're giving off, but they don't regulate that at coal plants. Wow, that's that's actually kind of interesting. Well, um. What what are those? They they, they talk about these uh, potassium iodine pills that are supposed to, I don't know, right. potentially uh, mitigate <laughs> radiation poisoning or something. I mean, how does how does that even work? How does a pill affect what? radiation poisoning? Because well, isn't radiation you, isn't radiation stuff that like 
it affects your cells and it affects the DNA. And so you end up having mutations in DNA, which can cause cancer. Isn't that what radiation is? I mean, how do you yeah, mitigate that's that? What hap- that's, I mean, typically that's what's going to happen is, um, is the ra- you know, the, now the other thing is there's all different kinds of radiation. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I mean, first of all, there's just generically different types. There's neutron radiation, which is neutrons, and there's alpha particles, which are, you know, they're basically hydrogen nuclei, I guess. And then there's beta particles, which are uh, beta radiation, which is uh, electrons, and gamma gamma rays, which is electromagnetic radiation. So they actually have a several that are distinctly different. And then even within those kinds, it's like what energy levels are they at? Are they high energy? Are they lower energies? And it depends on what radioactive isotope they're coming from. You know, okay. This is how much energy they have. And so, you know, that's why, you know, you know, like when they talk about radiation, your exposure, they're already painting with a pretty broad brush. Okay. You know? Because uh, so because those radiate those those types of radiation have different levels at which they right. can damage. And, and anymore they get in your body. Now the deal with the iodine is your I guess it's your thyroid gland. You know it's it's it stores. You need iodine. That's why they put it in salt so you don't end up with a goiter. Okay. <laughs> Lump on your throat, right? That's why I started iodizing salt. And wait, 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 wait. Why is that? I don't, I don't know anything about that. So you, um, you what? know, I don't. You, you need iodine in your thyroid for some biologic reason and, and a severe deficiency. You know, just like you get rickets or something if you don't have your vitamins, you get this big lump on your neck. All oh, right, weren't they talking about that in India or someplace like that that they did right. they weren't getting salt in their water and so they had a lot of problems. The kids had problems or something like that. Oh, see, like- iodine. It's the iodine. Okay, it's the iodine. Okay, maybe that is it. Yeah, okay. All right. It's a gross lack of iodine. Yeah. Okay. So anyhow, somehow, you know, your thyroid needs this iodine. I'm not a biologist, but I do know that. And what happens is is this iodine, uh, if it's this radioactive isotope, it'll aggregate. aggregate, And it's it's a common uh, fission byproduct. Okay. So it's going to be in this spent fuel and this type of thing. It uh, it will aggregate in your thyroid and possibly cause thyroid cancer. Okay, you know, so if it's in the environment somehow, whether you know you're breathing it in or whatnot like that, your body's going to tend to take your body is going to tend to take iodine and put it in your thyroid. So the idea being with these pills is you get good iodine, you make sure that you got that you you know, and you kind of fill up the tank. Uh, okay, because so if your body is is if your thyroid is filled up with good iodine, it won't take in the radiated iodine that's in the atmosphere. That's that's sort of the idea. Theoretically, or your body will just expel it, you know, some way or another. Well, because because you, you've been hearing, I've been hearing recommendations on the news that they, that they're saying like that, you know, that you know some doctor will come on and say, don't take potassium iodine pills is potentially more dangerous than any. Well, you know, yeah, who what, what it might be, right. <laughs> It might be, yeah, yeah. That's why you know, like all these things, you know, there is no clear victory, yeah. Right. I mean, because uh, so just taking a bunch of iodine, it's just filling, taking a lot of any kind of element or anything could potentially be trouble to certain people. It's like being al- allergic to things, right? right. It's like taking some hyper overdose of some vitamin or something, I guess. Right. You might be one of the one or two percent that has a semi allergy to it, and now you got a problem because right. you you took a bunch of it. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so if if you could make a prediction for what's going to happen in Japan, what would that be? Well, you know, the thing is, is they've got about five situ- or four situations going on over there. So it's not, that, that's, now that's the part where it's worse than Chernobyl. Chernobyl, they had one situation, okay? You know, they've got about five, four or five situations there. The, 
you know, I, I, I tend to agree with their assessment that this whole spent fuel pool thing is the, the grossest danger at the moment because simply because it's outside containment structures. Even though oh, because, the fuel because the containment structures have been breached, is that why? No, that- no, they, they actually had these spent fuel pools that were not inside reactors. Oh, okay, okay. What is that exactly? Well, what happens is you defuel a react. Okay, you, you shut down a reactor. Now you're going to do some maintenance or something like that. And you actually take the fuel out of the reactor. Okay. And then you take it over to this other pool of water, which is circulating water and whatnot. And you put it in there so you can work on the reactor. Okay. Now, actually, that's a big problem in the United States because we have no permanent disposal. So all these spent fuel pools and all these nuclear reactors is basically where they've been storing this stuff for decades and they're getting filled up and whatnot. So they had this stuff in the spent fuel pool. It, uh, I think they shut the thing down four or five months ago. So the stuff is, you know, it's, it's not super hot, like they shut it down, but it's, it's still pretty hot. It takes, you know, about four or five years before it's pretty, you know, somewhat benign. Um, so when you say hot, you don't necessarily mean the temperature is like X thousands of degrees. You no, mean no, it's radio- a lot of radiation. Yeah, how much radiation? But, you know, that, that translates to heat. Okay. You know, okay. I mean, basically, because he, radiation is essentially just energy. You know, it's a, it, you know, it goes out, you know, and the radiation, you know, then it excites the crystal lattice structure, whatever. It generates heat, you know, okay. in, sorry, you know, in these very high things. So, so this, ra- you know, this, this high level of radiation is actually making this stuff hot. Right. Know? Um, and so, so they put them in these spent fuel pools to keep things kind of cooled off. But, uh, you know, those things are actually exposed to the atmosphere. They're not in a containment situation. So that seems to be like the most immediate threat. Um, you know, it's, you know, it's definitely unexplored territory. Now, the, the one thing. You said there was like five different things going on. Well, they, they've had problems with their, their three operate. They had, they have, they had three plants that were operating. There's, there's six units out there. Okay. And they had three of those plants were operating and all three of those have had cooling problems. Okay, the 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 fourth one was defueled. Uh, that one they've had a problem with their spent fuel levels, and they have two more units that you know, I haven't really heard any news about. So they've got about you know they they've got they've got three plants that probably have experienced at least a partial meltdown, or three units you know at the whole plant. Uh, the um, then they have the spent fuel pool. One, one, one of the big problems, you know, that they've really got right now, is it's hard to make any kind of prediction because this is like a fog of war situation. Like, unlike, like, you know, like, like here at home, you know, my, my web application is being bad. You know, you can look in the source code and say what's really happening. They don't really know what's happening inside some of these reactors at the moment. You know, right. the, the place, I, I mean, you don't, you know, even when you're operating the thing, you're operating it to remove, you have a lot of indications. And now, you know, the place is, it's been earthquaked, it's been tsunami, it's been fired, it's been explosion, they don't have any electric power. You know, I mean, you know, they're going by the most grossest of indications on what's happening inside these things. That's the really bad part. The really good part, the good part is, is, you know, despite all the stuff you're going to hear about, you know, this and that, everybody's negligent. The Western plants, you know, and I, I went back in the 90s. We were spending a lot of time reanalyzing these things. These things tend to be grossly overbuilt. 
you know, because they were designing these things back in the 60s, you know, with slide rules, right? And then, you know, so they would come up with their numbers and they just multiply everything by five to be safe, you know? Right, right. <laughs> and, uh, <clears throat> you know, so they have these huge design margins. As you see, I mean, this thing already survived a, you know, a, an earthquake that was 100 times more powerful than its design earthquake. I think they designed it for like a, a seven on the Richter scale and they got nine out there. And this is very close to the epicenter. So, uh, you know, the thing already, you know, is taking quite a licking. Um, and for, for the meltdown situations in these these plants, you know, I mean, there's still, you know, <laughs> There's a great deal of ruin in a nuclear reactor, you know, a typical Western one. You know, even if these cores like melt completely and plop down onto the floor of their containment structures, you know, I mean, that still isn't the end of the world. You know, I mean, it's not a very good situation, but it's still not a Chernobyl. Okay. Right. Yeah. And, uh, you know, the other ones where they've got these fuel things that are exposed to the atmosphere, they're somewhat less radioactive, but they don't have any kind of containment. Uh, the solution is a little bit easier if you can get water into them and cover them up. So um, they seem to be concentrating their efforts, rightly so, on this spent fuel pool. And then I think it's the number three reactor, which is actually uh, a plut has plutonium in it, which is worse. Okay. Worse because and, for what, what reason? Uh, for human exposure. The, uh, okay. yeah, yeah. Plutonium is a very toxic substance in its own right. And again, Mary, we talked about these different types of radiation and whatnot like that. If you actually ingest some plutonium, like you inhale, like very, 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 you know, very small amount of it, you know, you, you more or less, okay, you're getting lung cancer. Right. You know? Wow. Okay, yeah, but not it, the same thing of radium necessarily. Yeah, uranium necessarily. No, no, it's it's uh, well, you know, like I said, it, yeah, is the the plutonium's very very dangerous stuff. Okay. So you are, you know you really want you know the, the amount of that you release, you want you know you definitely you don't say well it's just a little bit, you know. Um, so. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> so you know, and, and rightly so. So they're they're concentrating their efforts on. These things, um, you know, now they're talking like, hey, you know, we're going to do Chernobyl. We're just going to cover everything up with concrete, you know, and put up a little plaque on it or something, um, which is probably what they'll end up doing. Uh, you know, like Three Mile Island, they actually defueled the thing. And what does that yeah, mean they defueled it? They actually went in, they got out all the melted fuel. It took them 10 years. They had to make all kinds of robots and everything. It took, actually took them 11 years from 1979 until 1990 uh, to uh, actually clean, clean up the unit. Uh, and then, uh, uh, you know, at Chernobyl, they just encased the whole thing in concrete. Did, did the, um, did, where they take, did they what, transport the, the, uh, the spent fuel or the, or the, or what were, or what remained of the fuel to uh, Yucca Mountain or something like that? Or someplace yeah, like that? Yeah, they probably reprocessed it somewhere. I mean, you know, you, you start pulling that stuff out. They actually got it. They actually have a, uh, a term for the, for the melted fuel. They call it corium. Okay. And, uh, you know, it, which is going to be different depending upon what reactor it came from. It's just one of those terms they have. So this this is going to be, it's just going to be a mess. I don't know what they ended up, you know, they took it off somewhere and they probably reprocessed it and, you know, to extract various things out of it. And, you know, yeah, then put it somewhere and wait to put it in Yucca Mountain, which isn't really accepting anything yet. So it's probably sitting out, you know. <laughs> back as some nuclear power plant like everything else is waiting to waiting to go somewhere well but it sounds um, like that would be it sounds like this nuclear reactor that i think what you're what you're referring to is also is a spent fuel 
pools. That sounds yeah. like a really dangerous situation because I can't imagine that all these nuclear reactors are guarded like a, say, a, uh, a military base. I mean, you know, if a terrorist or somebody who wanted to, you know, they, have they hands on that. Pretty, they're, I think they're, you know, I, I think there's certainly some awareness, you know, of that. Uh, you know, they have security right. systems or this sort of thing. I don't know what they're doing now, but I mean, I think we'd be fools not to, to be, to be, to be looking at that. I mean, even we got well before this whole global war on terrorism and stuff, you know, there was still pretty significant security and response teams at your typical nuclear power plant. So Um, so so the nuclear power plant you worked at in, um, was it Alabama? What was it? Yeah, well, I was actually just working up at corporate headquarters, but I would go down there to the plant on occasion. I mean, would they have like giant walls and guys walking around with machine guns? I mean, how do they protect Yeah, but you'll have a perimeter. Um, you know, the thing is, is to come in there, I, I mean, what are you going to, you know, like, you know, you, 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 to come in and like actually like steal the spent fuel. I mean, it's not like something like a ladder sitting out behind my house or something, you know. <laughs> I mean, right. it's in the middle of this facility. It's, uh, you know, behind doors, behind locked, you know, huge you know, locked doors and, you know, big concrete walls. And, you know, they do have some guys around with some, you know, some machine guns here and there. And, you know, you got to know where you're going and where this stuff is. And, you know, and, and along the way, encounter quite a few people like, why are you here? You, you know what I mean? It's just right, like right. walking shoplift and selling on a target you know well, i'm just sort of thinking of like an episode of 24 right and you have like this, yeah, this small like yeah. commando team of terrorists could go in you know let's, let's assume they're armed with basic you know with guns and night vision and they know what they're doing and they have some something that they can put this the the spent fuel in i'm just wondering you know if you had a guy of 10 well-trained no, guys it's a, it's a large volume of stuff it's not saying like hey let's just go and get a suitcase full of this stuff you know you need like they, a I mean, giant Cheers of trucks or something or yeah you know and then the stuff is going to be pretty hot because it's spent fuel so you know i mean they they don't do it in trucks they take it in train of these uh i mean if you want to you know google up what they call dry casks i mean there's these large concrete things that they load on flatbed uh, rail cars you know so you know you got to get a way to get it out of there i mean i you know the i think it might just be easier to do it iran's way and you know make your own enrichment program rather than trying to steal it um you know mm-hmm. You know, although, you know, the other aspect is like trying to buy some of that out of some of these destabilized, you know, somewhat destabilized states from the old Soviet sphere. That's what we've always been worried about. You know, that's right, probably actually. Especially, especially when they were, especially right after the uh, fall of the Soviet Union, when there was, there was so much, uh, I guess, poverty throughout the Soviet Union. Right. The economic right. collapse that, you know, you have someone comes in with a few million dollars and says, hey, you know. Could take some of this off right. your hands. <laughs> you just yeah, look away from yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, and I, I think some of those people actually. I think some of those, some of that expertise has been like strategically assassinated. To be honest with you. Oh um, really? You know. Well, you know, yeah, you know, it's. It, I mean, I would. <laughs> I mean, you know, depending on where where you are, you know, where you are on the side of some divides, but uh, uh, yeah, you know, it'd be, it would be pretty tough to just come in and steal this stuff. I mean, just so it's just going to be physically transporting out of it without having the stuff kill you, you know? Mm-hmm. Right. You know, so you'd have to be nuclear radiation. experts anyway. Just You'd have to be nuclear experts just to just to know how to transport it without being killed. And, tra- and you know, handle this stuff. Yeah, yeah. And not it. only that, it's going to be a lot of big, heavy stuff. You know, it isn't like, you know, like grabbing a laptop or something, you know? You know, it's like you have a specialized forklifts or something. 
things like that. Well, it, it's just big okay. bulk. You know, it's, you know, like, you know, like I said, you know, you, you're going to need quite a bit of this stuff. And, and on top of that, then it's not all that enriched to begin with. You know, you guys get okay, so it's not like something you could make a dirty bomb out of. So, so I mean, could you make a dirty bomb out of it without having? I suppose you could do that. Yeah, you could do. You know, just yeah, you 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 want to kind of salt some kind of like conventional explosive, explosive. But uh, uh, you know, I mean, the bigger worry about all this stuff is we're just, you know in the United States is we've essentially made these spent fuel pools, um, you know, permanent storage for 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 all this nuclear waste because you know it's just been going on decades for a, a permanent repository, and you know these pools are filling up. They are. Um, you know, then they're, you know, nobody wants, you know, everybody's going to use every bit of capacity they have before they built another spent fuel pool because it's not, you know, it, it is a little, you know, it's a fairly expensive thing to set up. So they're filling these things up as much as they can. You know, of course, and that, that just has problems with, you know, is there a, a problem of, you know, achieving a, you know, a fission reaction in this pool itself or, or, you know, in the event of an accident, you just have so much more material there. So this is, it's not a good situation actually at our nuclear power plants with uh, the spent fuel here in this country. And that was, even, that was recognized 20 years ago, even. Right. Right. So I, I was reading that, you know, uh, in a recent article that, the nuclear problem in Japan isn't going to be the big deal now. I mean, the number of people that are going to die as a result of that is going to be, you know, few if any. That the, that what people are going to die from is the cold now because of the oh, yeah, the, oh, yeah. the yeah. cold weather, and now they've lost a huge amount of their electricity. So they're going to have a lot sure. of deaths. I mean, they've already lost what ten thousand, maybe thirteen thousand. Yeah, 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 yeah. And they're probably yeah, going to lose gonna... a lot more because of freezing people freezing to death or something. I mean, how, how how much of their electrical capacity was just knocked offline because of this? Uh I you know I I think that uh, they said that TEPCO, which is uh, Tokyo Electric Power, uh, that they had something like fourteen nuclear reactors, and now like ten of them are all offline or something like that. So they're 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 they're, they're having rolling blackouts around uh, northeastern Japan, or they, at least they've been talking about doing that. I don't know whether they've actually instituted that, but they're right at the borderline of their capacity. Uh, down, the pro- one of the problems in Japan is they've actually got two different electric systems in Japan. It's one of these funny things about Japan. It's going along saying, hey, this is such a high-tech gizmo place. And then there'll be something that's just really backwards about it. And there, there's actually two electric systems in Japan. One's eastern Japan, one's western Japan. They operate on different voltages and frequencies. So you can't you 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 know you really can't share your capacity your generation capacity from Western Japan to Eastern Japan. So you right. know they're they're you know um, you know and that's why like my wife's down in Osaka you know it's in the west you know we're on a different electric grid completely and uh, so the uh, yeah they're they're going to have some blackouts there. I mean they, they I I think actually this is going to be a real watershed moment for Japan. Japan if you look at J- Japanese history, they go through periods every now and then where they get like you know they're, it's a very insular place. You know they're on this island and they have this very ethnocentric culture and they're very it's kind of very inward looking place. Oh and, and, and every and, now and, and, then and, and Jay you know, Jay well, before before you go on I should oh. say one thing. Um, for our listeners okay. that, you know, your wife, Yukari, is Japanese. 
Yeah, right? yeah, yeah. And you've and, spent, uh, some, and you've spent well, some time living in Japan, so you're not just speaking of somebody who's an outsider. You have some perspective on no, I, I, I'm, the country. I'm spending about half my time. My, actually, I'm going to go over there about two more weeks. Again, I'm spending about 50% of my time over there right now. The only reason I'm spending 100% is because i got a little business here that I'm still chugging along. And, my little boy. My little boy just finished first grade over there in a Japanese public school. Right, you know, so, right. Okay, yeah. so I, I just want to clarify that so people understood that you you have uh, a little more experience read the newspaper about it every once in a while. Yeah, yeah. Well, if you look at Japanese history, you know, about every, you know, they periodically will get some, you know, they're, 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 they're motoring along. We're a happy little Japanese island, you know, and, and then somehow, you know, their whole universe is like shocked and disequilibriated. And then there will be rapid sort of changes and turmoil in their society and then it'll sort of kind of come back into equilibrium for a long you know they like equilibrium in japan um and it'll kind of come into some new equilibrium you know the first one was their initial contact with the west which created all these issues you know they got guns and everything and that ended up you know they had a lot of advances at that point and then they they had ended up though with them like you know throwing out all the foreigners killing all the christians and locking themselves off for 200 years they said you know get out of here we don't want any of you guys around here <laughs> yeah. right and right. uh and then you know then their next big shock you know came when, when they got open what was it 1855 or something like that when these uh you know the the black ships as they call it showed up and you know they're looking back on their pitiful little muskets that they have and these guys got all their cannons and everything and you know they, they said oh my god you know we got to get some of that and they just went on a tear for westernization it's just amazing what they did there in a short period of time you go around japan and you know you, there's museums all over the place and and so many of them they, it all starts in 1870 there'll be a bunch of guys you know a bunch of black and white photos of guys with all with kimonos on standing around like a steam engine and like one western guy and like saying yeah you know we decided we were going to do this and it all starts in 1870 you know and, right. and then you know then, then they beat the russians they built a big blue water navy and then and then then world war ii was a huge shock to them and they said, no, you know, let's do this economic thing, you know. And, uh, and then, you know, they achieved great success at that. And they kind of went on to a plateau here for the past, you know, 15 or 20 years. And, you know, this is very shocking to the nation, what's going on there now. You know, they just thought, okay, well, we're just going to be fat, dumb, and happy forever, kind of like the Edo period when, you know, when they were shut off from the world. It was, you know, very kind of tranquil period, particularly the latter part. They, uh, you know, it's been very sort of tranquil living in Japan the past 10 or 15 years. You know, there's no crime. Everybody's affluent. And, you know, it gets a lot worse press abroad. But, it's a, you know, it's a nice, comfortable life there. And all of a sudden, they get this huge shock. You know, right. and, I mean, the emperor is addressing that. I mean, that never happens in Japan. You know, it's not like the president here gets on the TV. I mean, the last time the emperor got out to talk to the people was at the end of World War II to announce the defeat. Really? <laughs> you know, wow. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it doesn't happen very often. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I would say that not very free. So once in a lifetime of an emperor, he might stand say something. Probably. Right, you know, and uh, you know, he kind of, you know, he's like, you know, it, 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 you know, the guy doesn't really have any authority. He has only moral authority, but um, you so know, he's like it, England or something, you know. Yeah, but you know, they 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 don't have the buffoonery of the English royalty. <laughs> yeah, I'm sorry. Yeah, <laughs> no, no, you're you're right. Hey. I don't have any um yeah, any dog in the fight. Big stress about that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, you know, that's you know, so so yeah, I mean, you know, everybody like 
you know, nobody really is always running around thinking about the emperor there, but the emperor shows up and says something. You know, it's a big event in Japan, okay? And uh, because, it, you know, it just never happens. And, you know, even today, then the premier, you know, is like saying, you know, this is like a new era for Japan. We're going to get through this and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, you know, and so I don't know, you know, it's going to come out of this. It's going to be a little bit different Japan, perhaps, you know, because this has just been a huge catastrophe over there. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I had read some things about how, um, and actually, I actually corresponded with a couple of people who were in Japan during this yeah. year. And they said it was just amazing how well the Japanese people responded to it, how they didn't panic, how they were helpful and productive yeah. and proactive. Is that, is that kind of the case? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> Japan, Japan's a funny place. Um, you know, it, I like to say, you know, Japan is a place where everybody gets the memo. <laughs> I mean, everybody, you know, <laughs> and uh, so what do you mean by uh, that? I like the sound of it, but I'm not sure exactly. You know, it's just everybody. You know, it, it, I mean, it is a place. It's still a very Confucian society. I mean, yeah, you know, you're gonna see these guys with the, you know, purple hair and all this kind of stuff and doing cosplay and all this kind of stuff. But you know, it's still, you know, they're gonna respect you and you know, bow and everything. And, you know, everybody kind of does what you know. They, they, it's a hierarchical place. You know, everybody's kind of hierarchical, but in in a two way, it's more of a you know not to say like I'm the boss and screw you. I mean, it, you know, it goes both ways. You know, there's obligations up and down. Everybody kind of knows their place. It's like you know, the whole place is like a little Swiss watch the way it runs. You know, and everybody knows what they're supposed to do. And you know, it's it's a very ethnocentric little place. It's like 99% Japanese, and every you know the people have the standard deviation is smaller among residents there probably than almost anywhere else in the world, just in whether it's, you know, culturally and, you know, I mean, even economically, they, they don't have, they don't have near types of uh, income inequalities that, that we have. So, you know, so, so the people are much more on the same wavelength with each other. You know, and it they shows have more, up. They have more in common, right? Because everybody has more in common, then yeah. it's easy for them to agree to things. If everybody, like in the U.S., you have such a range in terms of people's outlooks, religious, yeah, right, political right. views, in incomes, yeah. backgrounds. I mean, yeah, and ethnic, I mean, and ethnic ones. I mean, they they have a very strong sense of themselves as the Japanese people, right? Yeah, they really do. I mean, that's uh, you know, I mean, it's not very politically correct, but um, you know, it's. I mean, it's part. It's certainly very, you know, big part of their identity is, you know, we Japanese or something like that. This is what we Japanese do, and uh, so, you know, I mean, I'll give you an example. <laughs> this is kind of a small example, but it just tells you something about Japan. This was years ago. It was maybe about ten, twelve years ago when we were we were visiting uh, my in-laws at Shiga. And we, uh, uh, this was around Thanksgiving time, and the, the weather there is about like it is in D.C. around Thanksgiving. And it was, it was unseasonably warm, and we're going to go visit a friend up past Tokyo, actually up in Ibaraki, where this earthquake has, has hit so much. And I wore a short, I got up, I put on a short sleeve shirt. And this is late November. You know, my wife's like, aren't you cold? And I'm like, no, I'm fine. It's going to be fine. You know, in the morning, you know, mom-in-law and dad-in-law you know they're like are you cold i'm like no i'm fine you know and the whole way all the way up there you know like the the train attendants everybody's like aren't you cold aren't you cold and, and you're going through tokyo station you're seeing thousands of people walk by nobody i'm the only person wearing a short sleeve shirt like everybody got the memo you know like after right. a certain game in japan it's like the army you know when you go to long sleeves you know? <laughs> i like and and you know um and everybody's commenting on it 
I mean, in a nice right. way, aren't you, Cole? But, you know, in a way, it's kind of like, get with the program, buddy. You know what I mean? <laughs> right, 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 so, right. So you did know, you have more cognizant of that kind of things when people start asking you a question like, I need to... You start- know, I caught on after a little while. I said, I see what's going on here, you know, and everybody's sort you know, I mean, everybody's really nice and really polite, but they'd rather not have to be worried. You know, they have to worry about you. That's part of their ethic. You know, everybody worries about each other, but they kind of really would rather you just put on a, on a long sleeve shirt so they don't have to do their demonstrations of concern. Right. You know, but they won't, nobody would ever say that, you know what I mean? But, uh, and then of course, you know, I'm like a stupid foreigner, you know, that I don't know, you know, and, you know, so that, you know, <laughs> that makes it worse. That throws gas, they, you know, they expect something like that out of me. And, uh, uh, so, but it's just a place, yeah, it's a very uniform kind of place. You know, people just know what they're supposed to do and common cultural experience. That's one reason we got my little boy in school over there right now, um, that, you know, he's, he's a dual citizen right now. You know, he's half Japanese. He was fluent in Japanese. And, we, and you never know. He might want to stay and live in Japan when he grows up. I don't know. So, but he's not going to, you know, he's never, he, it's hard enough for him to fit in being, you know, sort of, you know, they call it a hafu, which is, again, very not politically correct here, although they don't mean anything by it over there. <laughs> and, uh, 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 but, uh, you know, it, it, that he has this common cultural experience. Right, uh, you know, of, of kind of growing up, and you know, and, and then of course learning all that kanji and all the pictograph stuff. But they do; they teach them how to be Japanese, like in the schools there. You know, one of the great, one of the things they actually grade the kid on. Of course, he doesn't get a very good grade on being American. <laughs> how uh, Japanese are you? <laughs> I mean, one of the things actually is on his report card coming home from the school is like listening to other people because they're big on this whole group thing. You know, working with a group and everything, and you know, like you know, like listening and caring about what other people have to say. You know, he kind of gets marked down on that. <laughs> yeah, it's like, yeah, you got the, does they get like an American handicap? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to have you, we're going to give you five points actually because you're American. We right, right, we're going to spot you this, you know, and, uh, <laughs> but they, you know, I mean, you know, experience is different, but, uh, you know, so, so, so I don't know, you know, I mean, uh, you know, certainly I think your average, you know, like you go down to Osaka right now, you know, everything's normal. And, you know, they actually felt the earthquake there. I was Skyping my wife at the moment and she said, wow, we just had a really long earthquake, you know, but they just, it was light, but it was long. It was really, you know, where they were down in Osaka, you know, of course, and the news started coming out about, but, uh, uh, you know, you know, life's normal there. I mean, you know, there's, but uh, they're probably it's kind of like more... when it's kind of like when New Orleans, the New Orleans yeah. catastrophe happened. I mean, you know, if you weren't New Orleans, it was sort of, you know, you right. just make the news. It's right? hypothetical. But I think I think your average Japanese, because of the greater interconnectedness of, you know, basically of the people there to each other, is probably much more psychically affected by this than like me in New Orleans. You know what I mean? Sure. Sure. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. You know, now they, now okay, I'm, I'm way off topic. Sorry. No, but this is actually fascinating. This is actually fascinating to me. I mean, we're actually our guest next week was just spent a week in Japan. We had someone on the phone on the uh, I'm sorry on the podcast a couple weeks ago who lives in Japan. So we actually have more connections to Japan. Yeah. Fact, which is kind of funny. And of course, uh, you and uh, and in Yukari and Ben Chan are living in Japan. Yeah. So let me show you this. Um, there were some, I guess there were um, advisements from the State Department for the U.S. citizens not to be in Japan, to get out, and that they were chartering planes to help people get out if they wanted to get out. Um, right. I mean, how are you looking at that? I mean, if, if they're well, not and things are good, is, is, I mean, what's the story? Um, you know, it's, yeah, I, I, uh, I actually, we, got, we have a sister-in-law that was living up in uh, Tokyo, 
And uh, I'm actually glad now that we ended up not living in Tokyo. We don't want to live in Tokyo anyhow, just too big. But um, I was okay with this whole nuclear thing until this whole spent fuel pool thing on Monday. You know, basically on Monday, I, you know, I started reading between the lines a little bit. And, you know, first you think, oh, okay, you know, yeah, they got some problems. They'll get some electricity out there and they'll store cool and everything will be okay. And then uh, uh, I read that, you know, about uh, – and this was before things really kind of reached a hysterical crescendo out there. It was still sort of in the news, but, you know, everybody was more focused on the tsunami and the earthquake. And they said something about, like, yeah, they had a low, low level in the spent fuel pool. And at that point, I said, wow, you know, that means the situation's out of control, that they could, something like that, they, that could happen. And they, they're so overwhelmed by events that they wouldn't notice that or they wouldn't be able to mitigate that. And so I did actually advise, you know, I, I told my, wife, I said, why don't you get in touch with Miwachan up there in Tokyo and say, hey, you know, it's a good time to hop in the car and come down and visit grandma down here in Osaka, you know, which she did. She actually went to the right. school and pulled, pulled her kids out of school, out of class, and got in the car and drove down to Osaka. Um, you know, so I don't want to be hanging, you know, I, I, I would get out of there. You know, the country at large, you know, we're going to err on the side of caution for our sure. foreign citizens. I mean, it's easy to say, if you don't have any business being over there, leave, you know. Right. Makes sense to me. I mean, me, I got business over there. Right. Yeah. 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 More than business. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's like, what I say. But I mean, you know, so yeah, I mean, if you're a tourist, I mean, you know, why would you advise a tourist to go to Japan right now? I mean, you know. Yeah. In I, fact, you, I have a very good friend of mine. He and his wife have tickets they bought like six months ago and they're getting ready to go over there in like a couple weeks. And now they're like, oh, crap. You know, and, and even on top of that, even, even, you know, like, let's say you're not even going down, let's say you're going down, you know, to, to, you know, Kyushu or something like that. I mean, you know, the whole thing is just not, you know, it's not really going to be like a very merry atmosphere. Right, right, right. You know, right. Vacation. So, but, but yeah, you know, this whole thing, this whole thing, like, why did we put up a 50 mile barrier and the, the, you know, the Japanese government was only 30 or 20 and they're trying to make, you know, that was a huge teapot tempest. Of course, we're going to be more, more, more conservative about our foreign citizens abroad than these people that are trying to run a country there. And, you know, we're going to say, you know, stay out of the way, get, get out of there. You know, you, you know what I mean? Right, wait, because it's just going to have your back. It's like, don't stay in a hotel in that area, whereas you can't really tell people, you know, millions of people, or at least hundreds of thousands of people who live near it who probably aren't in any kind of danger, just, ah, well, you should leave. <laughs> I mean, you know, where? Right. where they oh. have, you know, and, and, you know, me, I mean, I was probably leaving anyhow because I don't live there. Right. You know, right. I, I mean, average, you know, your average American, it's like, what do you need to be like traipsing around a disaster zone? So, you know, that whole thing that they were trying to make into some sort of rift between the United States because of our different, I just, I thought that was a ridiculous issue personally. Right. So, what about the issue of the, I mean, I think this has been covered in the press pretty well, but I'd be just curious on hearing your thoughts on it, is the idea of the, of the radiation coming to, you know, to other parts of Japan and to the U.S. I mean, I guess my understanding is that once it cover, crosses through the Pacific, it's going to be so diluted that it would have no, uh, nothing dangerous about it. I mean, is that yeah, true? Yeah, you know, well... Depends how much you give off, you know. It depends. Does it rain a lot on the way over? Does it? You know. I, you know. It, it's not like, you know. Some sometimes I, I remember like when I was like young, like the Chinese did some kind of like atmospheric nuclear test, and like you know, the, the cloud circled the globe twice. You know. Um, you know. So so you know a lot of these. You know, like like at the rate they're giving off stuff now. You know, I don't think it's an issue. You know, if they go into full bore, like, okay, every bit of those three plants, like, uh, 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 um, 
you know, vaporizes all at the same time and it's, you know, going to come and rain. You know, it's like, would it still be an acute problem or a chronic problem? You know, is it going to like, are people going to start dying like from radiation sickness? I don't, I don't think that, you know, is it right. something, you know, then you, but then it's like, okay, you get a little bit of this in the food chain and, you know, you know, what happens then? And, you know, so, and then, but then you get down to this low level, this low, these lower levels that we really just don't know. You know, a lot of stuff you just really can't quantify. You know, and you know, to to certain extent, you know, the, the people are very again, as I said before, people tend to be in the industry tend to be very conservative about it, and they say, well, we don't know, which of course then scares everybody to death. You know, right, um, right. Uh, so. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be particularly worried about it on the West Coast myself at the moment. And even if even if there was, okay, let's let's say, you know, you know, we, we get back online here and we say all three plants have melted down, it all gasified and it's heading for the West Coast. Yeah, you got three days to get out of there. Right. Right. Yeah, so or four days or something like that. And you know well, where do you go? I mean, if it can cross what, how, how many miles is it? Fifty five hundred miles from Japan to the West Coast? I mean Yeah. I mean, we're all, if it could go that far, it could certainly well, think, go to I like. Look at like the whole jet stream. I think you'd go south or north, right? Because if you just go west, you go I'll go to Vegas, and yeah, right, right. I'll go visit JPC. Although you know it'll be more dissipated the further west you go. You know, so um, right. you know, but I, I, I look at that as pretty remote. You know, at the time, right? I mean, they're going to do. You know, the press is jumping on this stuff already because you know they they saw a little blip and and. In Los Angeles, I'm sure you saw that or something somewhere in California. I saw I saw that in the news, but uh, um, you know you're, you're going to have a lot of warning. Um, and I also consider it kind of a remote, remote thing. Right. That's that's personally my opinion. Of course, what what are, you know? <laughs> why should anybody believe me? You know, uh, but <laughs> uh, 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 but I mean, if I was living out there in LA right now, I wouldn't be panicking. You know, I mean, no, I but yeah. no, Osaka is how many miles south of where the reactors are? Uh, it's about five, six hundred miles. It's like to the southwest. Okay, and uh, uh, you know the prevailing winds are on your side out there, even you know because the, the winds in the northern hemisphere tend to go you know from west to east in general. They have prevailing winds. Uh, at least up in their latitude, I guess. Um, and, uh, uh, or the jet stream does up there and that tends to, to, to do that. So, so, you know, they're, they're in pretty, you know, they're in pretty good. I mean, we, you know, we talked about, it. we said, well, you know, should I just hop on a plane and come back here? And, you know, I, I you know, that, that has risk too. I mean, my wife's got to quit a job. We're going to take, you know, we, we have to like basically uproot, we just uprooted our life to go over there a year ago. You know, right. and, uh, you know, and again, it's one of these things. It's like safety. Is it safe? You know, it's like, well, you know, it's all calculated risk, I guess. You got to say, well, okay, we, you know, we'd be destroying our lives all over again and starting all over again just by uprooting you and coming back here, you know, a year later, you know, is the risk level at that right now? Uh, we talked about that. And, you know, the answer is no right now. Now, are you, you know, it might you, change. You might change. You know, I mean, you know, I don't. You know, again, like you might air this broadcast on Sunday, and by Sunday, maybe you know, we're trying to get everybody home. Now, you know, what was your plan? When were you? When are you scheduled to fly to Osaka? Well, I, I was. I, I had already bought my ticket before this incident. I'm spending about two months here, two months there. It's typically what I'm doing. Yeah, you know, okay. racking up a lot of frequent flyer miles. And, uh, you know, I mean, you fly to Japan, you know, I mean, you fly much further than that. You're coming home again, you know, and, uh, uh, 
you know, so I was supposed to go over there on the 8th, which, uh, and then I was thinking, hey, maybe I want to move this up, just, you know, being over there with my family, you know, during this sort of bad time. And uh, then I, then there's also practical considerations of like, you know, if I wait until the 8th, you know, and this thing gets really ugly, I might not be able to get over there. You know, all these airlines are canceling, you know, flights and whatnot like that. So, you know, we just talked it over. I mean, for a while there, we were thinking, well, maybe I'll just, uh, I'll just move this thing up and go over there, you know, tomorrow or something like that. Just get, get over there, you know, pack my suitcase and go now. But, you know, we, we, we talked it over and decided, well, I'll just go with the plan right now. Go over there on the 8th. Right. Okay. And yeah. I, I got it. I got um, another question. It's a little off topic, but it, it might be a little okay. relevant to the show. So you're working at doing freelance uh, as a freelancer and in, in doing coding, right? Is that, is that what you're well, doing? Well, I'm actually CTO of a little startup right now. Oh, okay. I, cause I remember you, you were, you were kind of freelancing and you were kind of serving years ago. Yeah. We got a little project here, you know, it's, it's some social media stuff, you know, like everybody else is doing now. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, you move on, you know, it's like, where are the Buffalo, right? Right. And, it uh, used to be chase. It used to be chasing the, uh, Russians or the Soviets around with nuclear yeah, subs. Now right, it's building that, social that, media. So. And now it's social media. Yeah. <laughs> yeah that was street <laughs> graphics for a long time, you know? So yeah. Right. But anyway, I, I got a little startup here that, you know, um, you know, uh, most of these startups go out of business. This one, we're still kind of chugging along. What um, is it? Uh, it's a, it basically it's some social media stuff. We're gearing it towards towards government being here in Washington D.C. And uh, you know, we st- we're still we still haven't taken any VC money. We're trying to wait forever before we would ever do that and build as much value as we can. You know, and, we talk about that all the time on the show, which is like remove as much risk from the table as you can. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Are you anywhere in the uh, in the kind of HB Gary space? HB Gary, that doesn't. Oh, matter. that was the whole anonymous. That was. Uh, uh, I don't know if you followed that story along, but you know, anonymous uh, hacked into HB Gary Federal, which was a security contractor um, that did a lot. Of, was well, government and NSA stuff. Yeah, we're, basically, what we're trying to do is we're trying to you know the the you know the, the government. A lot of these government people they want to take advantage of the whole various social media stuff, right? But they really don't want to leave all their information, everything up on, on servers up in Google or Facebook or something like that. You know, I'm yeah. just, they, you know, they would, they want cozier partners and that. And so, you know, we're doing, you know, we're doing that, you know, basically we started off with some Drupal stuff and we've heavily customized it for, for different security levels. And, um, you know, it's, it's kind of interesting. We're starting a little traction for it, it, the one thing we're always having to apologize about we're outside your guys' firewalls, right? You know, which makes people in government typically very nervous about things. Well, we're close enough to them that they trust us because we're only about government and we're small and we're local and we can say, you know, we're not selling, you know, information to anybody. Uh, you know, and, you know, whereas like they call it, you know, they probably can't even get Google to pick up the phone. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, and, and then it turns out, you know, it's this kind of lemonade scenario. Yeah, we've been, we've been you know, wearing our hair shirt about the fact that we're outside the firewall, but that's actually turning out it's working. It's a good way for them to do cross-agency stuff with other people. Right, right. Otherwise, yeah. it costs a fortune to set up PMs yeah, right, and all right, kind of right, stuff. Right, right, right. You know, and then getting it through and, you know, drilling through firewalls. And then what about this guy over here? So, so we're actually starting to get some traction there. 
on that of people actually, you know, independently setting up groups on their own and, you know, just sort of free range usage, you know, of, of not even things that we've sort of shepherded along. And, you know, so it's, it's, you know, we're getting some traction here. Uh, it's kind of heartening. Uh, you know, things happen really slow dealing with the government, though, you know, as you might imagine. And, uh, you know, the whole thing is designed not to do anything rash, you know, which, you know, it's fine with me. Um, so, yeah, so I come back here. I'm the CTO. It's a very small company, though. We've only got about four people with it right now, four or five people. And we're distributed even around here in D.C. Uh, you know, I, like my lead guy's up in Baltimore. And, you know, we see each other once every two or three weeks. We do everything over Skype or whatnot. Anyhow, I, I, I just come back here because being a CTO, you know, I'm going to have to talk to strategic customers or possible investors or stuff like that. So periodically, I come back here to have a window for a lot of meetings. Right, right. And uh, you, you said you're using Drupal. How is that working out for you? Because, Justin, you've had some experience at Drupal, and you've had sort of like positives and negative experiences with it, right, Justin? Yeah, I mean, I, I've, the, the positive experience I've had is that it's really fast to get up and running, huh? and the negative is that to get the last 20% of the way there, it takes a lot, lot you know, it takes longer than you might expect. Pretty much. In the you, you know, I would say this, you know, I got to say I was skeptical of the whole thing. Um, yeah. Initially, this company, I wasn't actually working for them. I was just friends with them, and I hired him, the guy, the guy, uh, a friend of mine, is sort of like their senior tech. But I did go through with them, like select and initially te uh, tech selection for the platform. Okay, we want to do something that's kind of social media stuff, but we're going to work on it a lot too. And you know, we were both me and Dakota, or Dakota and I were both very much of. You know, Java Spring, Hibernate, you know, servlet snobs, I guess, right? And, you know, the, this Drupal thing, PHP, you're kind of like, huh. but you looked at it and you said, well, okay, you know, if I take my own preferences aside, this one for what we want to do here kind of fits the bill. And this was a couple of years ago. It was a little before Drupal's kind of got the traction that it does now. And, you know, like I say, I was kind of snobby about the whole thing. Um, but uh, uh, it's worked out a lot better than I thought. I mean, it's certainly far. I would give it, you know, I, you know, I'd, I'd give him a B to a B plus. I mean, there's definitely, you know, I think the very best, you know, well, do you want me to like stimulate controversial traffic? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> I think the very best. If, if you could say something negative about Java or maybe Apple or maybe Python. <laughs> what I think is I think the very, you know, I, I'm always amazed. We actually, we've just done a whole bunch of stuff with virtualization because we want to test like running parallel servers for our expansion stuff and load balancing stuff. You know, we just, our, our, our production server is just one server, one. I mean, we have different DB server, but we only have one, one instance of, of a server there. And, um, the uh, 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 but we wanted to test a bunch of parallelization, and we're talking about doing some other distributed stuff. So we did a whole bunch of virtualization stuff and puppet configuration and 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 uh, vagrant stuff, and, and you know just running this virtual. So I can set up a whole uh, set of distributed servers, VM'd on my you know on, on my own machine to test these things to make sure they all work. You know, and the stuff works flawlessly. I mean, it took a while to configure this stuff and get everything right, and, and it's amazing to me actually now here you know year 2011 the quality of open source software and particularly like system stuff 
you know, like like things like you know, like 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 the like you know, uh, you know the, the you know the hibernates, the 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 springs, you know, the Tomcats, all the, those things are phenomenal. They're better than any commercial software in terms of just reliability. Um, I tend I tend to think that these back end system ones get the best open source developers. You know, I think you know. I guess I had Drupal that's a little bit more front endy. You know, the the quality is a little more uneven in it. You think you know, that's so, because- some, some portions, you know, you look at it and you say this could be a little better thought out. But you know, generally speaking, it's a very good. <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah, yeah. totally. I'm just you know, wondering why you think that is. Do you think you think that's because coders like to attack hard technical problems and the back end stuff that's exclusively that? I mean, what 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 are like real you know real computer geeks like working on? They like working on OSs. You know, they like, you know, you know, and things that actually have um, algorithmic problems to worry about, fundamental technologies. You know what I mean? Sure, sure. I mean, what do you rather work? Would you rather work on the core of Drupal or would you rather work on the core of Hibernate? Me, I'd rather work on the core of Hibernate. Yeah, yeah, and 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 also when you when you when you get the front end stuff, he's talk about a lot of usability issues and stuff, and that's frankly kind of boring and painful and hard, and a lot of times it's outside the real uh, wheelhouse of developers right i mean you need right, right. a lot of preference a lot of its opinion a lot of it there's no real answer to some of that stuff so you know a lot of it just comes down to opinion you know i mean that's true of any of any of this but i think it's even more so there so but i mean i don't want to ping on drupal i've been very impressed with drupal by and large yeah you know don't get me wrong um but yeah you know you look and say now they we have not you know all fairness we haven't gone on to drupal seven yet you know we're still here on our six but you know i've been pretty happy i've been pretty pretty happy with it you know the one thing the one thing we definitely did find out with drupal is you know if you're going to use drupal don't try to fight city hall <laughs> I mean, right. you got to go with the grain you got to go, go with brain. I mean, you know, make everything nodes, you know, make everything, you know, the... You oh, yeah, do it do it the Drupal way, exactly. Do it the Drupal yeah. way. I'll tell you, as soon as you start getting outside the Drupal way, uh, you know, it, it, you know, the thing just becomes, starts unraveling and tripping you up in every regard. And, you know, so that that's the one thing, you know, you, you got to love Big Brother if you're going to do it the Drupal way, you know? <laughs> <laughs> I really do believe that. You know, I think that's... A- I, I think that's a blog post right there, right? You got to love Big Brother. <laughs> if you do it the Drupal way. Even. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. I think that's a great but blog post title. We, we actually kind of, because, you know, we kind of didn't start off that way, you know, like, like some of these things, some of these other technologies that you use, you know, you, you can use a little bit or a lot of it and, you know, we're then write some of your own stuff. And, you know, we, we definitely found, you know, where we tried to like, do something else, but then start using some of these Drupal services. And that was, you know, we, we more or less took it as an ethic that, you know, okay, as long as we're using this Drupal stuff, you know, we got to kind of, you know, go on. Well, it, it makes sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, it's their API, it's their framework. And as long as you do, do it their way, then it's, it's all going to be interoperable. I mean, yes, that kind of, yes. Kind of makes sense. you know, we found that we definitely found that because, you know, all these other modules and the way they work, like we early on, we did, we said, you know, we don't have any kind of listening event kind of thing here, you know, I mean, and so we actually made some framework of our own, which has since long been obsoleted, you know, cause it just, okay, you know, this is, this is ridiculous. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. You know, and so let's just do it their way, you know, and callbacks and all this other type of stuff. And, I mean, it sort of offends my my uh, conscious, like you know, this PHP thing, you know, like like just uh, 
uh, you know, the way you spell things, you know, <laughs> like, you know yeah. the spelling of a function name, you know, sort of, uh, you know, determines, you know, it's, it's fun, you know, it's, uh, 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 utility. Um, so, but, uh, you know, that's just sort of residual snobbery on my part, I guess. Um, right. Cause you were a Java guy. Yeah, I was a C++ guy, you know, and I mean, Java was, you know, sort of, I mean, I had to reconcile myself to Java many years ago, but, uh, and now, now it's, oh, sorry, just let you guys know, we've, we've come up to the one and a half hour mark. Oh, okay. Do we want, you know, um, yeah, well, well, we got way off topic. No, no, that's, that's okay. That's, that's, that's an, typical. That's typical texting. Oh, okay, okay. So I've been, I've been. <laughs> we we try and go where the go where the getting's good. You know, if there's yeah. if there's something yeah. fun to talk about, screw it. Whatever we whatever we were starting to talk about, ah, uh, you know, doesn't yeah, matter. Yeah, 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 yeah. Uh, okay, so I, it's probably time to wrap this up a little bit. Is that correct? Yeah, you know, I, I would, one thing I was gonna say is like uh, our listeners may notice that that we may have actually found someone who talks more than I do, which is you, Jay, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. With, with a very, uh, very pleasant voice, according to Jay. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. Well, no, no, to be honest, James Altucher also. Talks more. Well, so, so yeah. I said, you know, if there's one person who, I, who talks more than me, it's my brother, Jay. And if there's one person in the world that talks more than Jay, it's our sister, Natalie, who, who yes. talks breathing. She talks breathing in and out, right? And <laughs> That's right. right. She's inhaling through nostrils. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's actually something to witness. It was shocking when the first time, I mean, as an adult, I was sitting and had a conversation with her. And she talked. It was a wall of sound for about an hour, hour and a half. And I don't think she, she, I don't think there was a pause where I could, where I could break in and say, Hey, Natalie, you know, it was amazing. So, so it's, it's kind of funny for our listeners to think that you're the quiet one in the family. Yeah. Well, I'm probably, I'm probably third out of the six of us. I'm in the middle. Wow. Yeah. Well, yeah. Cause, uh, yeah, I would say that's probably the case. Yeah. yeah that's so, so Thanksgiving must be hilarious. Yeah. Well, we actually don't get together very much, right? Everybody's distributed. Very distributed. Yeah, and 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 Jay and Natalie are, are my half brother and sister. I have I have um, four half brother uh, half brothers and sisters and uh, and one full brother, my younger brother Jeff. So. Okay. Jay, Jay is from my dad's first family, right? And um, yes. Natalie. So we're okay. uh, my dad's second try. I guess. <laughs> Distri- distributed tribe. Distributed <laughs> tribe. We but, were uh, again. I don't know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so. But um, Jay, thank, thanks so much for coming on and, and okay. Well, yeah, thank you very totally. much. It was it was really nice talking with you guys. Yeah, it was it's a lot been a of lot fun. of fun. It was a lot of fun. It was really interesting hearing about the nuclear situation. It was very enlightening hearing about uh, your take on Japan and Japanese culture. That was really cool. And uh, yeah. even about Drupal. So it was that was okay. great. Okay. Okay. Well, good luck, and we'll be talking with you. Thanks. All right. That's the wrap. We're out. Yeah.